There we go. Praise God. How's everybody doing this morning? So glad to see you guys. So, uh, man, we've just came back from an awesome, awesome uh, conference. So you're going to get to hear about that in a little while. We took all the youth up to Elevate Conference 2017, and it was just an amazing experience. The kids were touched by God. They're fired up. And, uh, uh, you know, it was just an amazing time for them. So I'm so excited to, to be able to let them share that at the, at the end of the message here. We're going to have them come up. But as I was thinking about it, the, the theme of the conference was actually called Enough. And basically what they were talking about is they wanted it to be, uh, to, for the kids to finally stand up and say, we've had enough of the stuff that we're dealing with. We've had enough of fake people and fake Christians and people that are walking uh, through like, the, you know, pretending to be Christians, pretending to do these things, but not living like they're supposed to be living. And there was multiple other aspects of this enough, but that's the one that stuck out to me as I was preparing the message because I've called this morning's message False Security. And as you guys have know, we're, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is part 17, and we're a little over halfway through. Um, but it's been a great time through it. But I'm always amazed how God ties stuff in. As, even as I'm going through something that seems rigid, there's only so much that can go through. to see how God ties stuff together. But before we get started, let's go ahead and, and bow our head as we come to the Word, and then we'll dive into it. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that we can spend time looking into it, that we can study it. Father, we thank you that you're still speaking to us today through it, that it is alive, that it is active, it's still sharper than a two-edged sword. And Father, I thank you this morning as we as we uh, study your word, that we would be challenged, that we would be convicted, and that we would not leave here the same way that we came in. Father, I pray that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you sent it in each and every one of our lives. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So like I said, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at, um, basically, Paul begins to tell them enough is enough. We're going to look at how Paul's argument over the last few chapters have been concerning the lifestyle of the Corinthian church, the Corinthian believers. And he'd been teaching them the need for self-discipline. You can go back and, and, and review chapters 8 and 9 for that, or you can listen to the messages online. But the problem was is that these, these, these Corinthian believers were starting to live in a sense of false security. They had kind of constructed their own version of Christianity. Anybody ever seen that? Somebody kind of constructing the, it's like the Geico version of Christianity. You know, I'll take this, I'll take this, and, and you can leave that. And that's what had happened. The, the, the Corinthian church had kind of constructed their own version of Christianity because they believed that because they professed faith, they went to church, they joined the Lord's Supper, that they could live their life however they wanted to. And they didn't understand that what they were ultimately doing was was kind of, you know, biting their thumb at God. They were, they were kind of saying, thank you, Jesus, for taking care of all this stuff. Thanks for forgiving us, but we're going to go ahead and do whatever we want to do. They didn't let it impact their lives, and they were doing all kinds of crazy things. They were exercising their freedom in ways that they shouldn't have. It was causing other believers to stumble, and they were kind of looking at their lives, well, well I'm, I'm saved. I can do what I want. Instead of realizing that they were forgiven of their sin, they were using salvation as a license to sin. You know, they would be, I can do whatever I want. I just ask God to forgive me and everything is okay. So Paul is going to take the first part of, of a, a chapter 10 here, I believe. He's going to be taking this and looking at 
uh, some other, uh, other people in history that kind of had that same idea and take a look at what happened at them so that they can learn from it and move forward. Amen? So we're going to go ahead and get started in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. And he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So Paul is going to begin to lay out the story of the Jewish people to explain, to show a people that were incredibly blessed. They were the people of God. They were blessed. If you know, from the outside looking in, when we look at what happened in their lives as they were freed from Egypt, you're like, man, God loved those people and he did some incredible things. So you would think that when God had done such an amazing thing from these people, that there would be no more sin in their life. There would be no, they would just be living for God with everything that they had. But Paul wanted to point out to these people that you know what? You can be loved by God. You can be blessed by God. You can be saved and still live a faithless life. You can still live a godless life, even though all of these things have happened in their lives. And we know that the Jewish people, they were free uh, under, under, from slavery under Moses' leadership, right? So, and, and they had these absolutely amazing miracles happen that were God. They couldn't have been any, anything else. God was moving in their life. So, right, Moses goes there. They go through all the, the, the trials that are, that are oppressed against the Egyptians. Find the Egyptians have, have had enough, and they're like, get out of here. Take everything and go. So they head down the road, and, and God could have took them a little bit longer route, but completely safe route. Nothing in the way to get to where they were going, but instead God says, no, go this way. So they're listening to God, they're traveling, and they come up to the Red Sea. And I wonder if they were wondering, wait a minute, I know this area. If we would have just went the other way, this wouldn't have happened. And now they're complaining, and they're like, immediately, after God had just performed tons of miracles and freed them from slavery, they're all heading out. It's been like five minutes, and now they're already complaining and grumbling because things aren't working out the way that they wanted it to. So then God parts the Red Sea. Now, the problem we have with this story is, how many know that parting a sea Parting a bathtub would be a pretty amazing miracle, right? But then we think, all right, he's parting the sea. And we see in our heads and in all these illustrations I've seen of this happening, we see, you know, people going like, you know, two wide, four wide across this little channel through the Red Sea. But if you think about this, the scripture says that there's 600,000 men, not including women and children. There's about two to two and a half million people. You know what they weren't doing? going two at a time through a little channel to the Red Sea. God wiped that thing. I mean, imagine what that looks like when God just takes in and makes complete dry land for two million people to come through. So God intervenes. It couldn't have been anybody else. God sends them a direction that's going to have some difficulty. God provides, sends them through it, and it's this amazing miracle. And you would think at this point, like maybe they should have it, right? They should really have, have gotten it through their skulls that God is with me. I'm going to serve him and trust him because he's faithful. And they get through. And then as they're wandering through the wilderness, on top of that, by, by day there was a cloud and by night there was a pillar of fire over the tent of the tabernacle. And when it got up and moved, it was God saying, follow me. And it, God directed them every step of where they were going. That's what he says. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. All of our fathers, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, they were blessed by God. They were loved by God. They were saved dozens of times miraculously by God. And they have this, I mean, at this point, 
they're, they're, they're living large, right? They're like, God loves me. But we all know the story how it keeps going, right? They keep, they keep back, so they keep grumbling, they keep messing up. But, but we're starting to see a people that are blessed. And then it says, and all were baptized in verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And what this means here that they were baptized into Moses is that they, they shared in the blessing and the gracious deliverance of God. They were all together. They were all one with, with Moses and what God was doing there. They were all participating in the blessing. They were all receiving it. And by their experiences of passing through the Red Sea and the other great miracles that God did, they were, they were united as followers of Moses under the headship of God. And the cloud represented God's presence of glory among them. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 14. But it indicated his leadership and his protection. And the sea represented God's salvation of his people. Because it was through the Red Sea that God parted them and they were able to walk unscathed. And then it came in around the Egyptians behind them. And it says that all of the Israelites... They experienced this baptism. They were, they were whelmed into what God was doing for them. Did you know that the Greek word that we use for, for baptism, baptismo, the Greek word there is, is actually the same word that they, they use when they're talking about dying clothes? So what that means is, is, is what the word means is to fully whelm or to submerge. And what would happen was, is when they, they dyed clothes, they would take a, a white cloth and they would dip it into water that had the dye mixed into it. And when they took it out, the dye would have become one with the cloth. When the, when the cloth was baptized in the dye, it became one with it. It was, it was no longer a separate thing. Anybody that's ever been doing some tie or something and spilled some, some, some dye on your shirt knows that it's not coming out. Because it becomes one, it fuses with it. It is permanently altered when it becomes baptized. And that's what Paul is saying here. When they were baptized, they were permanently altered. They became one with what God was doing. They were united with Moses in him. But the interesting thing is, is this common baptism, this, this, them being united with Moses and God, this, it didn't cause them to not be unfaithful. You would think with this stuff happening that they would be motivated beyond anybody else. See, this is one of those things when people talk about, they say, Pastor, if I lived back in those days, you would see how faithful I was because, I mean, they saw miracles. They saw stuff happening. You want to know how I know they're lying? Because it didn't happen to anybody else that was back then. Somehow we are capable of just ignoring what God has done and slipping back into who we used to be. We forget about God's goodness and his grace and his provision, and we slide back into the people, the, same, the very people he saved us from being. And we know that that's what happened with the Israelites' time and time again. And in verse 3, it says, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You see, the presence of God in the cloud and in the fire, the parting of the Red Sea, that's not where God stopped either. It wasn't like you get your two miracles and that's it. You're going to have to go get another ticket if you want another one. That's not where God stopped for them because we know the story, right? I mean, the, 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 the Israelites received such an amazing blessing. So they're out there wandering in the desert for 40 years. That means that there were some kids when they started, and they were 
40 years old when they ended. We know that because the, the, the people that entered the promised land were actually the descendants of those who left out of Egypt. So they grew up, and their clothes never wore out. Their shoes never wore out. How many of y'all with kids want some shoes that would grow with your kids? Because my, man, my kids, they just want stuff. They, they don't want it. They need it. That's the worst part. You can't even say, you got a pair of shoes. You know, that's flapped up, toes are sticking out, dangling. I want some shoes that grow with my kids. I think that would be a good thing. But, so that's what's happening. The clothes are going with them. Their shoes, I mean, that is a massive blessing. And then they don't have any food. So God supernaturally sends manna from heaven. And I always think it's funny that, that they called it manna because that literally means, what is it? They didn't know what it was, so they called it, what is it? And this is what God used to feed them for, for 40 years. They had manna every morning. Fresh, fresh manna from heaven, fresh fruit. I mean, that is a ma- they were seeing that every single day, the blessings every single day. And then, then they get thirsty. And instead of saying, hey, God, you've taken care of everything else. Can you, can you hook some brothers up? They begin to grumble and complain. They don't have any water. And, and God, you just saved us from the Egyptians to so let us die out here again. So then God brings water from a rock. Now, how many of you... The picture in your head when you heard that story was like a, an old school water fountain. You know, just a little dribble coming out. Maybe it was a, it was a good water hose stream. Anybody ever remember that story like that? And that's how I saw it. You know, Moses went and hit the, hit the rock with the stick and poked a little hole in it. This is two million people, y'all. You can't feed a drink. Two million people can't drink out of a garden hose. This is a river opened up out of this rock and provided for these people. Two million plus people to drink from it. And it didn't even just happen once. It happened twice. The stuff that was happening to these folks just blows my mind. They were so taken care of. They had so much provision in their lives. And Paul taught that what was with them, the spiritual drink, the rock that followed them, the rock was Christ. Paul taught that this, this rock that followed them in the desert was Jesus. And he's not talking about a physical rock that would get up and walk around with him. He's says Jesus Christ, who was there from the beginning, right? He's the creator of all things. In the beginning, there was a word, and the word was God. The word was with God, and the word became flesh. That's Jesus. Jesus was there. Jesus is the source of their blessing, even in the desert, even before he had came, even before he died for them. He was the source of their blessing. And you can say, but Pastor Wayne, you're stretching a little bit. But in 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says that the promises of God are yes in him. The promises of God take their source from Jesus Christ. So Jesus provided for them just like he provides for us and met their needs time and time again. But in verse five, verse five, verse five says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So here's the thing. It is entirely possible to participate in the blessings of God, in the provision of God and not be pleasing to him. You see, salvation is a gift. It's given freely. It's available to everyone. But so many grab a hold of this gift by such a, a small string, just barely hanging on to it, and that's all that they want. 
And they're still living a life that's not pleasing to God, all the while trying to claim his provision and his salvation. You see, in this case, the Jewish people, they had enjoyed an unearned, an undeniable freedom and provision from God. But they over and over again continued to live like God was just a distant memory, like he was just out in the background, like, I heard that name once. I don't remember what it was for. And they treated him, they pushed him away. They treated him like he was a, 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 a parlor gift, like he was something to just be tossed aside except for when you needed it. And these people that had enjoyed this incredible provision and blessing, the Scripture says, with most of them, God was not pleased. That most of them rebelled. And how many know that most of them is the greatest understatement the Bible has ever made? You know how many made it into the promised land of those two million people that left Egypt? Two. Caleb and Joshua. So by most of them, he meant all of them except for two did not receive the inheritance that they were supposed to receive. Because they had been rebellious and and unfaithful, they never entered into the promised land. And they experienced a small portion of blessing along the way, but they never received the full promise, the full provision, the full inheritance that God intended for them to receive. They died out in that desert. And as I'm reading this, I begin to think how many of us have experienced the hand of God in our lives I mean, really had God do something in our lives, yet we still live as though he's an inconvenience. As if he's just trying to steal our fun. If he's just trying to make our life miserable. If he just doesn't want us to, he doesn't want us doing the things we're doing because he just, he, God doesn't like us. We live like God's up there in the sky with a big stick waiting for us to mess up. Or we live like he hasn't done anything for us. So many people have missed out on what God truly has in store for them because they're so attached to what they used to have. There was one person that I was talking to, and she told me, you know, I love what God has done in your life. I can see that it's made a change. It's one of the greatest changes that I've ever seen. She says, but I don't want to serve God because I don't want to turn into something different. I like who I am. I don't want to change who I am. Because somehow we're deceived that who we are is who we're supposed to be. Who we are without Christ is something great and amazing. People think that without, without Christianity that they are free. You know, I've had people tell me that, that you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be a Christian because then I won't be free to do the stuff that I want to do. Because right now I'm free to drink and smoke and, and mess around with, with all the girls. I'm free to do all these things. And I don't want to be, you know, held down, bound down by religion. And I said, you're free. Well, if you're so free, why don't you try going a week without doing those things and see how free you are? Because they're not really free. They're in bondage to the very things that they think that they're free to do. That they couldn't give up if they wanted to without Jesus Christ. And I've seen people get supernaturally healed. And I'm talking like 
pancreatic cancer be completely removed. And if anybody knows anything about pancreatic cancer, it is the worst. It's almost impossible to treat. It's, they call it the silent killer because you never notice until you're way too late. And I'm very much experienced with it because that's how my father died was of pancreatic cancer. They did all the scans and they were going to go in and they, they were going to try to remove it with surgery and they went in and they opened them up and closed them right back up and said, it's too late. Because by the time they noticed, it was already stage four. Pancreatic cancer is an awful, awful cancer. Not that any of them are any good. But I knew a man who, who had pancreatic cancer and somebody rose up at one of our actually men's retreats. They rose up and they laid hands on him and they spoke against the cancer. They, they commanded it to die, to go. And he went to the hospital when we got back and he had no more pancreatic cancer. And we were rejoicing with God. It was an amazing thing. And a month later, we never saw him again. He just walked away from God. I once knew a lady who had hepatitis C, which is the one that there's no cure for. It will kill you. And we laid hands on her, and we prayed for her, and she was completely freed. She went to the doctors, and they said, we know you had it because we see the antibodies, but you no longer have it anymore. And months later, she walked away. We never see her again. People... How many of us are touched by the hand of God and we just walk away? The problem is, is it's so easy to keep looking back at how things were because the enemy wants to deceive you and think that what you had before is somehow going to fulfill you. It's somehow going to make you happy. It's going to complete you. It's what's going to make you whole. And we get deceived. We get tricked into thinking back into those old things that we used to do. And we walk back towards them. In verse 6, it says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written. The people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. Now I wonder, when they're reading this letter, if some of the Corinthians are like, but this is the, the, the Israelites, this is the Jews. What does this have to do with us? We're not even under the law anymore. We're under grace, the law of love. What does this have to do with us? And some of you guys might even be thinking the same thing when we're reading this stuff and looking at this stuff. What does this have to do with us? Pastor Wayne, you've taught us every time we've come here, you you teach us that we're saved by grace. We're not under the law. We don't have to perform. We don't have to do these things. And that is true. But the reality is is that when something takes place inside of you, like what Jesus has done, it's not about your checklist of things that I have to do. Something changes inside of you. Who you were is not who you are anymore. And out of that flows living right. Out of that flows honoring him. When somebody does something like Jesus Christ, how can we respond any other way but serve and love him? But Paul, if we're, if we're thinking like that, Paul told Timothy this in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, that's man or woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. And what that means is what's written in scripture is there to be a lesson for us. It's so we can learn from other people's mistakes. But so often we want to keep making the mistakes ourselves. 
He says, these things took place to be examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did, so that we might not fall into the same trap as they did. Because the Israelites were blessed beyond imagination, but they kept putting something else in front of God. He said, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What that means is is they put something else in front of God. If you know the story, one of the things they did was they made golden calves and worshipped them instead of worshipping God. And we're warned not to do the same thing. And we think to ourselves, well, we don't make, none, you know, none of us has made a golden statue and stuck it in our room to worship. But the truth is, particularly in the United States, we worship all kinds of stuff. We have lifted up so many things above God. It is ridiculous in this country. We lift up athletes. We lift up musicians and movie stars. Some people lift up and rely on the government. Some people lift up and rely on their jobs or their spouses or their kids or their money. And don't even get me started on the American dream. The truth is, is that most of us lift ourselves up and our own personal and free time before God. It says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It, indica- it indicates that their own desires and gratification were more important than what God wanted for their life. And so many of us hold things up as more important than God in our lives. Something else gets our attention and our adoration and our time. We need to make sure, church, that we are making sure that, that Jesus Christ takes the preeminence in our lives. Amen? In verse 8, it says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. At 20, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, the incident that Paul is talking about right here is where, where well, 23 or 24,000 Israelites died in one day. And it's recorded in Numbers 25. You read through it in verses 1 through 9. And basically, the Israelites that were worshiping a god of Canaan and Baal of Pure, and they were engaged in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. And because of what was going on, God punished them pretty harshly. If you guys know the story, because of everything that was going on, uh, God sent poisonous snakes into their camp. And the Corinthian church would have really clicked with this. They would have really understood this because we, we talked about what was in the city of Corinth. You know, there was all the temples. I think the temple of Athena was there and all kinds of stuff. And for the Greeks, it was re- a regular practice to use prostitution and sex as a way to worship their gods. So the, 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 this would have really stung to the Corinthian church, particularly for those uh, Christian believers who were professing to honor God, but still wanted to get involved in the, the uh, prostitution and the other temples and all of those things. But what happened was is they were sexually immoral and, and, and 24,000 people died in one day. And Paul's not trying to tell them that sinning nullifies their salvation. I want you to know if you sin, if you make a mistake, if you slip up, you're not saved until the next time you, you beg God for forgiveness. When you are saved, as long as your trust is in him, he's, he's paid for all of your sins. The provision has been provided. Everything that you've ever done, that you ever will do, as long as your trust in him is covered by his blood, he paid for all of that. But he didn't pay for it so we could continue on doing the very same things that he died for. He did it so we could be free of those things. But the truth is, is there's still consequences for your sins, whether or not that you're forgiven for them. 
You see what I'm saying? There are still consequences for sin, whether or not you're still forgiven for them. Let me give you some, 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 some uh, uh, obvious examples. If you murder somebody, how many know you can be forgiven of murder? You can be forgiven of murder. You still might spend the rest of your life in prison. That's a consequence. You can mess around on your spouse and still be forgiven. You might not have a spouse anymore. That's a consequence. But God can still forgive you. If you repent, you turn to him. You you can be forgiven of the most grievous of sins. Or what about something not so extreme? You can be forgiven for lying to a friend. But you might not have a friend afterwards. Because even though there's forgiveness for sins, there are still consequences for sins. And living in sin. And if we claim to be to be saved, but willingly sin, if we choose to sin with no remorse, no repentance, how can we actually claim to be saved? What have you been saved from? And like I said, church, I'm not talking about stuff that, that you struggle with. If you're struggling with sin and you fall down, get back up. The scripture says the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up seven times. If you're struggling with something, thank God that you're forgiven and get up. And if you fall again, get back up. That's not what Paul's dealing with here. He's dealing with people that are intentionally living with, in sin. In verse 9, he goes on to say, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's actually what happened. God sent serpents into their camp. And it's interesting that it says that they were actually testing Christ even before Christ came to the earth, because we talked about all the promises are yes in him. Everything that was created comes from Jesus. He was there in the beginning. He always has been. But they're out in the wilderness. They're grumbling. They're complaining. They forgot what God has done for them. They forgot that he's been taking care of them. And then God sends serpents into the camp. The scripture says they were fiery serpents or or poisonous serpents. And they begin to be getting bit by by these snakes, and they begin to die. And many of them began to die. And we know we said 24,000 of them began to die, died because of this, this incident. And what Paul's dealing with them is, 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 is you guys are using your freedom in Christ to, as an excuse to ignore what has actually been done for you, what has actually been accomplished for you in him. And just like the Israelites had tested God, so were the Corinthians. Because they had, God had done something amazing for them. And even though they had accepted Christ as their Savior, they were, they were not who they used to be. They were clinging to the old person like somehow their identity was stuck in that and they didn't want to let go of who they were and become who they, they should be and who Christ had made them in Him. Even though the moment that they accepted Christ, they weren't who they used to be, they still hung on to it. And they were pressing boundaries. And they were, seeing, you know, they were seeing what they could do. And we see that even today. Christians are so focused on what they're allowed to do. Anybody ever had somebody ask you, well, are we allowed to do this as a Christian? Is this a sin? Can we do this? Where we're so focused on, on what we want or what we're allowed to do because the reality is, is, is so many people want to see how close they can get to sin but not touch it. You're not sin. I love you but they want to see how close they can get to it and not touch it. They want to see what's going on. 
Francis Chan, this is, this is something that he said I thought was brilliant. He said, lukewarm Christians don't want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. Church, that's not who we ought to be. We are saved from sin, not just the penalty. We don't want to see how close we can get to it. We need to stop asking what we're allowed to do and start asking what God wants us to do. And a real mature believer is not going to see how he can test Jesus' salvation. Instead, they're going to be living in obedience to him and, and wanting to be more and more like him every single day. I guarantee you Jesus never, when he was on this earth, ever wondered what was sin because he was one with the Father. He didn't have to ask those questions. And he didn't want to get as close as he could to sin without doing it. He wanted to stay away from, as far away from it as he could. In church, that's the way we should be thinking as well. You see, the amazing thing about this story, if you guys know the rest of the story, uh, Moses cried out to God and God said, make a bronze serpent and stick it up on a pole and hold it high in the camp. And whoever looks upon the serpent, if they have been bitten, they won't die. They'll be healed. And it's such an incredible picture of Jesus Christ because that's exactly what happened for us. We are trapsing around in, in sin in a world that's completely full of sin and it's constantly trying to bite us. It's constantly trying to poison us. And if you don't want to be affected, if you don't want to be killed at it, you need to look at the one who was raised up on a pole, who was raised up on a cross. Put your eyes on him. And receive his salvation and you'll be free. You won't die from those snakes that are trying to come up and get us. Everyone who looks up at Jesus is going to be redeemed from that poisonous bite of sin. But we got to stop trying to see how close we can get to the snake. Because I don't know, you guys ever watched, uh, uh, what was the guy, he died not too long ago, got hit with the stingray. Steve Irwin. You guys ever seen him out there messing with snakes? seeing how close he can get. You know how many times that dude's been bitten because he gets too close to snakes? That happens to us in our own lives too. We've got to stop trying to see how close we can get to it. Instead, stay, run as far away from it as we can. In verse 11, it says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, the Israelites were dealt with harshly when they were disobedient. Now, I thank God that the penalty of sin and all of the things have been taken care of in Jesus Christ. God is not out there waiting for you to mess up so he can send calamity and punishment in your life. The punishment of sin has been completely taken care of in Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for sin. It's not something that we have to pay anymore. But the truth is, is there are consequences if we choose to keep dabbling in it. And for those Christians who dabble in sin with no repentance and no desire to change and no concern for the, the great work that has been accomplished inside of them, they're certainly going to deal with problems in their lives. And there's going to be struggles and there's going to be pain. And the reality is, is the, the principle is still true that we reap what we sow. And what we send out there will come back upon us. But Paul's saying we can learn where others have failed. 
We can learn by what has been written. He said he wanted to warn them of their pride and arrogance because they may have been saved, but that doesn't give them a license to do whatever that they wanted to do. They were saved that they could live a godly life, not that they could live a sinly life, a worldly life with no penalty, with no consequence. And he said that while they, they thought that they stood tall, let, everyone, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. They thought that they stood tall. They thought that they, that they had it covered. They had misconstrued what grace actually was and made it so that they could live a life where they did whatever they want and still claim to be covered by the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, be, caref- be careful lest you fall. Church, we have not only been forgiven, but we have been made free we're not just free from the penalty of sin we are free from sin we're no longer a slave to sin we're no longer a slave to death but the scripture says instead that we are a slave to righteousness and the truth is is that whatever you're a slave to that's your master if you remain in slavery to sin it'll control you it'll tell you what to do if you think about how slavery works those who are in 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 bondage to somebody who are a slave to somebody they have to ask to do anything they can make no decision they can do nothing of their own accord they want to use the restroom they need to ask they want to 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 take a break they have to ask. anything that they have to do they're they're under the control of somebody else but we're no longer slaves to sin and death. We are slaves to righteousness. And that always confused me before, but then I began to realize that what that means is righteousness dictates what I do. That means because I'm righteous and it's dictating what I do, I'm not going to try to get as close to unrighteousness as I can. Instead, I'm going to walk fully in it. And we'll go ahead and end here in verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Now, we might begin to think that with all this warning and all this challenging that Paul's doing, that, that I mean, it almost seems like things are hopeless in some ways. It seems like, how can we ever do these things that God wants us to do? Especially if you're a young believer, really even if you're a mature believer, but there's aspects of your past that are constantly tempting you on a daily basis. When we're saved, we're free from the penalty and bondage of sin, but we're not free from temptation. And that old life and those old things will constantly rear their heads. But real Christians are not intentionally going back to that life that they came from. They're not intentionally living that sinful life. And the reality is that salvation doesn't mean that we can live in sin and just ask for forgiveness. And if that's true, then what are we to do when we're tempted? Because the truth is, is you will be tempted. Jesus Christ himself was tempted. You will be tempted as well. And the devil wants nothing more than for you to slip back into your old way of living. He wants nothing more than you to get wrapped up in the things that you used to do. And he wants you to believe it too, that if you can do that, oh, it's okay. Jesus still loves you. Do whatever you want. Now, I thank God that no mistake, no failure, no sin, no anything can separate us from the love of Christ. But when we get involved in that stuff, it's essentially us walking away from his love. 
The truth is, is that the devil wants you to be lukewarm. The devil wants you to proclaim to be a Christian but on Sunday, but live like the rest of the world the rest of the week. Because if you're lukewarm, then you are ineffective. And you're not going to accomplish the purpose that God has for your life. But all is not lost. Even if temptation comes, the first thing you need to realize is that you're not alone. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. So many times we get wrapped up in a temptation of our old life or old things or, and we think that we're the only ones struggling with this, but you're not. You're not alone. The devil wants you to be isolated, but you're not. And there are people that will pray with you, that will stand with you, and God has made provision for you. And I take great comfort that the, the devil will not have his way with me. He says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but he'll provide a way out. God is not going to let the devil have his way with you. You will be tempted, but he will provide a way out for you. One time, uh, Mother Teresa said, I know God won't give me anything that I can't handle, which is a slight mistranslation, uh, misunderstanding of what's being said here. But she said, I wish he didn't trust me so much. And the truth is, is that we're going to come against stuff. But nothing that will overtake you, nothing that will take you down. He will give you the way out. He will give you the victory if you'll keep your eyes on him and not on that thing that you're struggling with. Amen? He will give you that. He'll speak to you. But the problem is, is sometimes it's hard. Anybody have a hard time hearing God's voice sometimes? I read the story of a five-year-old girl, a, a lady's daughter, and she had, been, she had disobeyed and she'd been sent to her room. And after a few minutes, uh, the mom went to talk to her and said about what she had done. And the little girl says, why do we do wrong things, mommy? And the mom says, sometimes the devil tells us to do something wrong. And I replied, we listen to him. And we need to listen to God instead. To which she sobbed, but God isn't talking loud enough. Sometimes the background noise of our lives gets so loud that we can't hear what God is trying to say to us. Or maybe you're like me. I actually don't really have a hard time hearing God. God speaks to me all the time. I, I know very clear when he's speaking to me. My problem is, is I tend to ignore him way more often than I should. But church, let's make sure we're listening to his voice so that we can hear it and do what he asks of us, and live the life that he's called us to live. <laughs> and let's, church, let's be a people who are going to learn from the mistakes of the people that went before us. Amen? And let's not let our arrogance or a distortion of grace or any other thing that would take Jesus' rightful place in our lives limit us from the plan and the purpose and the blessing that is rightfully ours in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and uh, bow our head.